Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So have you guys seen the quiz in the New York Times today? Can you tell a Trump fridge from a Biden fridge? I have. I did not do well. I have not. Yeah, of course, Ben hasn't. Yes, I've seen it. So I went from thinking it was completely ridiculous and we are all out of election takes to being incredibly invested in my score <laughs> in the span of like two and a half minutes. That's How did exactly you do? what they wanted you to do. Not that good. I was doing great at the beginning and yeah. I was like, oh my God, I like I have my finger on the pulse of America. Right. What was it for you? Was it like... Was it like looking for bottled water versus Kirkland products versus sports drinks versus diet soda? Like what were like your key things that were like, yes, this is a Biden person. Yeah. So I tried to take like sort of like what region it looks like it came out of. Right. So some like brands of food make it like, you know, sort of like give you a hint. Mm -hmm. Also, right. Like if it if it seemed like, you know, East Coast elite, you know, they're like. You have game meat that you killed yourself and did feel dressed. That would be in your freezer in the basement in the gym. Not if you're cooking it tonight. This is why your refrigerator <laughs> smells like, horrible, Ben. These weird spooky ones where like it's just like a mess of some, <sighs> I don't know, like congealed something. Which one is moldy old food? Because that's <laughs> what we have a lot of in that's, our fridge. That's the Joe Jorgensen voter. <laughs> Actually, you know what really separates the wheat from the chaff in people's refrigerators? Hmm. Flavored hummus. If you have the chocolate flavored hummus, oh yuck. Just forget it. Then you've never been anywhere near the Middle East. And you should not be allowed to vote in the presidential election. <laughs> I just came away from this learning that Americans drink a lot of milk. Yeah. Come over to the Hennessy household. You will see some milk in the fridge. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Buckle Your Seatbelts edition. I'm Shane Harris. You could hold it, call it the hold on to your asses, your hats, hold on to everything edition, kids. We are six days, six days out. Hold on to your refrigerators. Yeah, six days from your refrigerator delivery. Next time we record this podcast, we may or may not know who the president is. Think about that. But we will be really tired. And possibly still drunk. Undoubtedly, because that's all that's going to get us through the next six days. And Shane, what's going to happen the time after that when we record the podcast? We may not. Oh, well, we may not know the presidential uh, results then, but we will be having a live show. Tell us all about it, Ben. Well, at 2.30 on Wednesday, I think it's the 11th. That, that sounds right. Two weeks from today. We will be having our second Rational Security live show, this time not on Zoom, 
we will be on Crowdcast, and it is part of Lawfare Live. If you are not already signed up for Lawfare Live, you really should be, and you can join the uh, Rational Security Live show. Ask your questions to us live on the show. All you have to do is sign up for Lawfare Live at our Patreon page on Patreon. That's You get that? The Patreon page is on Patreon. And then you can sign up for our Rational Security Live show, which will be on Crowdcast 2.30, which is when we always record Rational Security, Wednesday the 11th. And that was on what page? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's going to be fun. Will people be able to see us? People will be able to see us. We'll be able to bring them in to ask their questions. If any of you, for those in the audience who've watched In Lieu of Fun, it's the same platform that Kate Klonick and I use for In Lieu of Fun and that everybody on Rational Security except Tamara Wittes has used for In Lieu of Fun. And so it'll be lovely. We'll, we'll all get together and we will do Rational Security. Tammy, are you not an In Lieu of Fun fan? Is that what that comment No, was? No, it's not a boycott. It's just that, you know, Ben and I do rational security together. Our professional lives intersect in other ways. In Lieu of Fun is something that Ben is doing well outside the bounds of like our professional issue set. And it's his thing. It sounds like you're saying that's the one day, uh, one hour a day you get as a break. <laughs> I didn't say that. Those are your words, not my words. I feel you, Tammy. You did smile when you said it. It's about the same length as an episode of The Octonauts, Tammy, which serves the same function for me. Right there with you, sister. Oh, well, I think we've already made our introductions, but of course I am here in the Virtual Jungle Studio with Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi, guys. On the podcast this week, Americans head to the polls in the face of a virus and potential disruptions at polling places and beyond. Whoever wins next Tuesday or the Tuesday after that, the period between Election Day and the inauguration is bound to be rocky. And we will take a big picture look at the national security challenges that the next president will face, whoever he is. Let us focus first on next Tuesday, Election Day. Let's start by stipulating that a huge number of people have already voted. Um, Early voting by mail and in person has hit 51% of total 2016 voting. That's as we record the podcast Wednesday afternoon. That number is going to go up, certainly. This surge is fueled, no doubt, by people's fears of catching the coronavirus if they're standing in long lines, which they, by the way, still are standing in long lines, Um, but also, I think, over Trump's attacks on mail-in voting, which I don't think any of us expect are going to abate after next Tuesday. So, Ben, kick us off here. What, in your mind, poses the most significant security risk, however you want to think about that, as people cast their votes between now and the big day on Tuesday? So I think there are a number of significant risks, and I don't know how to prioritize them. So one is the risk, and I think probably the largest risk, is just the risk of election maladministration, not through any malice, but just because conducting an election under these circumstances is hard. And lots of localities and states have to do it subject to their own rules and their own electronic systems. And 
their own human personnel, and there are going to be difficulties with that. And I think the biggest risk is just that, you know, complex human systems are complex and they will fail a certain percentage of the time. And it's a very fraught environment for failures to happen in. So that's uh, one. The second is, of course, that there are ongoing efforts to reduce the number of people who can actually vote. That is to say, the intentional voter suppression issues. And those will be more effective in certain places than others. We are seeing fights over them right now, particularly with respect to mail-in voting in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, that the Supreme Court uh, weighed in on, on opposite sides of the issue, depending on which state. But there are microcosmic examples of that going on all over the place. Then there, of course, are the uh, foreign interference issues, which are probably informational in character, not active efforts to interfere in the voting, but you never know. And then, of course, there's what you might call random acts of God or or clouds of evil that just kind of settle over certain places and inject things that we had not been anticipating, the sort of black swan kind of Florida hanging Chad 2000 kind of problem. So I I think there are a number of areas where uh, things can really get hairy very quickly. I do think it's worth pausing over the good news, which is that more than, you know, something like 70 million people have already voted. The system uh, for all people's concerns about the mail has been delivering an immense number of ballots. So far, things have been relatively smooth. There have been some long lines, of course, and that's uh, unfortunate, but people have been really good humored about it. And there's lots of examples of people standing in long lines rather cheerfully. So I do think the American people has been kind of a champ about this so far. And I think so far we are not seeing serious problems and the numbers of voting are actually very strong. So, you know, knock on wood, so far, so good. But I do think there are a lot of vectors for possible problems. Susan. Yeah, so look, I I largely agree that Ben has captured all the buckets. Um, For me, I think the biggest practical concern, sort of concern that seems most likely to to come to fruition, is that the election really does come down to a state like Pennsylvania. And we're then in a period of protracted litigation and uncertainty because drawing out sort of the time dimension here uh, allows the opportunity to to insert lots and lots of different forms of mischief. Um, And they tend to be quite perilous national moments in which we need really, really strong and responsible leadership. And there are very few sort of positive things that occurred uh, after the 2000 debacle in Florida, um, but really, really responsible national leadership, the way even both of the candidates talked about was what was going on. Al Gore's concession, right? All of, all of these features, it, it really was uh, far more responsible than any rational person could believe that the current administration would be. Um, so I, I think that's sort of the thing that deep 
down uh, I'm really worried about. That said, you know, I, look, we are already in the realm of there being a lot of confusion around the degree of foreign interference. We saw this sort of bizarre press conference um, from the FBI Director Ray and DNI Ratcliffe uh, last Wednesday after we taped the podcast in which they um, made this sort of dramatic attribution to Iran, having sent these sort of fake Proud Boys emails, mentioned a little bit, oh, Russia might be up to stuff too, don't worry about it. The next morning, the New York Times came out with this really sort of shocking, uh, although not particularly specific story about the Russians actually penetrating and targeting uh, voter infrastructure systems. Shortly thereafter, the Wall Street Journal, Dustin Volz, reported a story that was pretty strongly in tension with the New York Times reporting and included a lot of officials on the record saying, actually, no, that is not what we're seeing Russia do. We're, we're actually seeing the Russians being relatively quiet, engaging in a little bit of sort of opportunistic behavior. You know, for the moment, I tend to think that the on the record, more specific statements um, are more credible, but it shows the degree of confusion um, and sort of the difficulty of understanding what's going on in, uh, in the absence and void of any credible national security officials or very, very few credible national security officials. I, I also think there's a real concern about the combination of some kind of targeted violence uh, with a broader disinformation operations to amplify. We see sort of opportunistic disinformation going on, right? When old voting machines uh, don't accurately register the right candidate, you know, Twitter, uh, and that's reported on Twitter, you know, these little Twitter bots, you know, pop up saying, oh, this is Russian, uh, you know, a Russian effort to, to, you know, infiltrate the systems, things like that. You know, sort of the nightmare scenario in which you have a sort of sophisticated adversary that combines both some form of on-the-ground event, uh, electoral violence, um, really egregious or severe voter intimidation, paired with a broad disinformation campaign to amplify that. That could be something that could be really, really consequential. Um, but I, I also think it's worth noting and, staying, and, and stating pretty plainly the single biggest threat to U.S. national security that might occur on November 3rd is if Donald Trump wins re-election. And that was true in 2016, and that is true today. The person on the ballot, the person we are voting for, himself represents or themselves represent the most significant national security choice that we are going to make. I, I understand that everybody sort of approaches the world through the lens of their own perspective and experience. This is a national security election, uh, among the many other things that it is. And so, uh, yes, reason to be uh, sort of concerned and alarmed and exceedingly cautious as we move through this moment. We'll get to talking about sort of what this means sort of in the in the transition and beyond later. But, but at the end of the day, the, the critical thing and, and, and really the, the critical national security protection um, is just as many Americans as possible going out to vote and, and participating in the process. Tammy. You know, I, I'm not going to disagree with Susan's broad point. I, I think it's pretty clear. I do think, though, that there is a set of security challenges around election day that we haven't really talked about, which is the fact that when you have a very polarized electorate that's highly mobilized and voting in vastly excessive numbers compared to historical levels, you have the anxiety around the election and the anxiety around the pandemic and people are going to be waiting in long, long lines on voting day. All of this is a recipe for 
societal tension, like interpersonal tension at the polls. And this comes in the context in which there are both domestic groups and foreign actors who are interested in stoking division and tension within the American polity. And, you know, everything that that Ben and Susan described about disinformation on social media is true. But add to it this. Imagine that a rumor goes up on social media that a bunch of dumped ballots were found outside a closed polling station in Florida at midnight on election day. It is not at all inconceivable that one result of that would be that politically mobilized actors on the two sides will seek to go there and secure the ballots themselves in a state where people readily carry weapons everywhere they go. Imagine people standing for six or eight hours in line in bad weather, armed, right? And imagine that uh, Boogaloo boys think that pissed off people waiting in line might be ripe for uh, stoking the kind of civil violence that furthers their agenda. These are the things that I'm worried about. I'm worried about domestic civil violence, not you know at demonstrations and stuff, but just around the mechanics of voting at polling places, at counting stations. You know, take the the so-called Brooks Brothers riot of Florida 2000 and add to it the demographics of today's Republican Party and all of its weapons. And I'll just throw another log on the fire for, to kind of go off some of Tammy's point. This is going to be a huge test for the press in an untraditional way. Usually people are turning to us on election night to know when a state has been called for one candidate and to tell us basically when the election is over, uh, when it can be you know, mathematically determined that one person has secured the most number of votes to get the, over the 270 threshold in Electoral College. It's not going to be that way this year. I think we all agree, unless there is just, you know, clear evidence that Joe Biden has won, you know, Florida and Pennsylvania and you know, Ohio or something like this in, in the first night. But really, people are going to be turning to us, I think, more to tell us whether all of this crap that they're seeing on social media potentially is real or not, and that there's going to be a big truth squatting effort and sort of disinformation combat role that the press might be playing in some way, maybe to just try to you know, maintain order and, 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 and calm potential violence in the streets. That's something we've never done before. And I think that's going to be a big experiment. Ben, then Susan, you had a point too. Yeah. So I, I agree with that and I just want to amplify it. The situation in which votes are going to be counted are so complicated and vary so much from state to state. So for example, in Florida, where already 70 plus percentage of the population has already voted, the early votes and the mail-in votes, which are believed to lean heavily toward Biden, will be counted first. And so you will have what some people are calling a blue mirage which will then be reduced and maybe overcome by day of vote, which will be counted later. By contrast, in the and that's true, by the way, in North Carolina and in some of the other Sunbelt states as well. By contrast, in the upper Midwest, as well as in Pennsylvania, 
the exact opposite effect is going to happen. The mail-in votes will be counted later. And so you're going to have a red mirage that, you know, the president will look much stronger in Pennsylvania in early voting, not in the early vote, but in the early counting of the vote than he will later. And so this gives a lot of opportunity for Democratic disinformation about the Sun Belt and Republican disinformation about the upper Midwest, where you're going to have you know, significant shifts, whether they'll be significant enough to change the apparent result, nobody knows, but you're going to have significant apparent shifts in a way that is relatively predictable and it is going to be up to mostly the television media to explain that to people as it's happening in real time. All right. So we've talked about election day and election night. Let's talk about this period between election day and the inauguration, which like election night, I think we're all expecting is going to be quite unusual and, and outside uh, of our recent experience, to put it mildly. Whether Trump wins or loses, uh, and put aside for the moment how and when we find that out, I think that it's safe to say the forecast between those two days, the election inauguration, is going to be very stormy. We've reported at the Post that Trump may fire FBI Director Chris Wray after the election. Uh, there's talk he may fire Gina Haspel. There's talk he may fire other people. Uh, the Durham investigation is still underway. And Trump has demanded, of course, that materials from the FBI investigation into Russian links to his campaign should be declassified. So, Tammy, start us out here. When you look at this landscape over this interregnum period, how do you think about a president who, regardless of whether he has won or lost, is almost certainly going to be unbound, whether he feels unrestrained because of victory or he feels wounded because of defeat? I think this is a really important thing for us to think about. And I think that there are two contributing factors. One is, as you said, the president's own mindset and his feeling unconstrained, either because he's an immediate lame duck or because he's just got validated and he'll never have to face election again. Either way, I think you're right. He will he will feel not only unbound, but empowered. But the other factor that's contributing to this, I think, is that there are a bunch of things we know that the administration has sought to do, wanted to do, hoped to do, but hasn't gotten to. That's true of every administration. But in this case, those are things that they where they've gotten pushback, including sometimes from Republican constituencies. That's why Chris Ray is still there, right? Um, because Republicans who in the Senate and others who were running were saying to the president, like, no more disruption. We can't confirm anyone new. Just sit tight. Let's get through November. And so, you know, those constraints go away, number one. And number two, there's this backup of stuff in the administration pipeline. And already the dam is starting to break. We've seen just in the last 24 hours, I think, the Trump administration signed a new agreement extending a bunch of scientific and technical cooperation with Israel into Israeli institutions in the West Bank, which is a tacit American recognition of Israeli annexation, de facto annexation in the West Bank. It's something no previous administration has done. It is a BFD, and it's being done like quickie, sign the MOU with the Israelis. They just 
announced that they are opening a massive national forest in Alaska to logging and other forms of uh, resource exploitation, you know, and then there are all the firings that they've been saving up. And they announced last week, the president signed last week, this executive order establishing a new class of accepted service. That means not subject to the regular civil service rules in the federal government that essentially eviscerates the top layer of the career civil service and um, makes every senior policymaking role in the government potentially subject to essentially at-will employment. And that is a recipe for politicization of all those jobs. So they are doing stuff already. And, you know, win or lose, I think that they've already got their list of stuff. We're just going to see it roll out like a freight train over the next few months. And that schedule, by the way, is Schedule F, which seems somehow appropriate, considering <laughs> it's a big F you to the civil service. Um, yeah, that, hey, you stole my joke, man. Oh, yes. shit. I thought you did. F you <laughs> to the civil service. I thought you were going to make it already. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, I, I almost think I have to reserve the sort of questions of uh, what would happen if Trump won, because it's such a different and dramatic set of events that would occur. Um, really sort of the the really rapid acceleration of all of the trends we've seen thus far, and really a, a president who is fully and completely unconstrained. Um, and, and I don't think Inauguration Day then becomes a particularly relevant sort of speed bump, right? Uh, the moment in which Trump believes he has decisively won re-election, uh, I think really all bets are off. Um, I, I think the the more sort of pressing question of the moment, not just because of the polls, but because there's there's actually sort of ways we should be thinking about it already, is what we might what we might be in for uh, between election day and the inauguration if Trump loses. And and I think there's a there's a number of different categories that we should be concerned about and, and really preparing for. Um, so the first is that uh, is if Trump sort of continues to stoke claims of voting fraud or an illegitimate election, um, you know, he'll continue to control and have uh, sort of have access uh, and, and control over all classified information. Uh, if he attempts to use that uh, sort of official power in, in order to essentially cast doubt on or erode the legitimacy of, uh, of Joe Biden's election, even if he doesn't believe uh, he can actually prevent uh, Biden from being inaugurated, you know, really could create a lot of mischief and and dramatically erode uh, sort of public confidence and legitimacy of the electoral system. Um, and I don't know that Republicans um, who would be best positioned to, to really provide a backstop and push back against him um, would be willing to do so. I don't think that they have incentives to do so because uh, you know, even if Trump manages to sort of cripple Biden a bit on the way out the door and, and weaken Biden's ability to govern, then I, I don't think Mitch McConnell minds that one bit. You know, the other thing we need to note is um, presidential transitions are really, really complicated and difficult under the absolute best of circumstances. Presidential transitions in the middle of crises, massive spiraling global pandemics, uh, related global financial crises, sort of the this is the absolute 
worst circumstances uh, for a presidential transition to occur. And so there's a real risk. One, the stakes are really, really high. And two, it would be really, really consequential if Trump was to essentially give up, to sort of give up on uh, any interest in governing uh, or in, ta- in using sort of the power of the federal government to contain the coronavirus crisis. Um, you know, a lot of people might sort of retort, well, what is he really doing now? Um, you know, certainly it hasn't been a great response, but that doesn't mean there hasn't been any response at all. And I do think that there's real concern, you know, and, and I think we saw it, uh, you know, in, in congressional Democrats who were clearly trying to reach a stimulus deal before the election because they knew or, or feared that after Trump lost, he wouldn't be interested in sort of in, in doing this. And so, um, you know, the country could really be um, be heading into a, a prolonged and, and quite painful period um, before Biden is inaugurated. Um, then there's the actual questions about the transition itself. So the White House, uh, you know, has continued to say, you know, we'll abide by our statutory obligations um, under under the transition, sort of this hypothetical, um, not the president himself, but his staff. Um, but very little is actually legally required of transitions. I mean, it's sort of its basic access to government facilities and documents, um, you know, but sort of this broad cooperation that is actually necessary, um, you know, for a smooth transition, that's all really normative and voluntary. Um, we know that the Biden camp is already planning for sort of a, a fraught and quite messy transition. Um, reportedly that there, there are um, sort of in a low key way individuals within the White House who are sort of trying to do the transition work while escaping Trump's notice and have managed to do it thus far. And we should acknowledge a lot of this happens sort of at the lower levels and automatically, and and uh, and those will those sort of agency transitions will will be executed and and occur um, really sort of without White House involvement. Um, but there is real sort of opportunity for mischief there. And then on top of that, we sort of have the questions of what Trump might do with the powers of the office in the final days: mass declassifications, self pardons, you know, making a agreements or commitments to to foreign partners or or foreign adversaries, right? I mean, I think if anything, if if the past four years have taught us anything, it's that it's really, really difficult to predict precisely what Donald Trump's going to do, only that it's going to be sort of insane and shocking and destructive. And so uh, there are a lot of tools at his disposal, a lot that that an angry, embittered, uh, disillusioned individual with the power powers of the presidency uh, might do in, in the three months before he kind of he gets he gets uh, escorted to the door. And it, and it seems to me on that point as well, I mean, Susan, you make the great point that there's no law requiring that the president has to participate in a transition and in fact could give out the order to say, do not participate in any transition. They didn't participate in the first one. I mean, there were briefing books prepared for them. There were drills. They gave these sort of, you know, half-hearted commitments to them. I mean, they started making policy in the transition, lest we forget. It's why Mike Flynn found himself in the crosshairs of the FBI. I mean, it almost makes me think we should just look to the way they behave in the first transition as a good model for how they go in the second, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think we should say there are no rules, right? So there there are laws on the books of sort of the basics that have to happen. And I think we can trust sort of various federal agencies to abide by the normal rules oh, and sure. processes. But no, at the top, right, of sort of actually, you know, transitioning plans, giving access to information, um, explaining what's been done. I, I Not only do I not think um, we can expect any of that to happen, I think we should be actively planning on it not to happen. You know, to to expect otherwise would be of sort of to not have learned the, the basic lesson of, of the entire Trump administration. 
I just wanted to say I think that the the Biden folks and and if they're wise, the civil servants in the federal government who are required by statute to prepare transition materials are just operating on the assumption that they will not get cooperation from Trump administration officials. Well, I, that that may be probably the, the the best guess of what's happening right now, right? Is that the Biden team is taking this very seriously. There are career people in the agencies who are fulfilling their obligation to do it. Uh, and maybe, you know, the boss will just ensure that they never get together and meet. And one thing, and Ben, maybe just quickly a thought on this, if you have one. I mean, we talk a lot about transition as this sort of, you know, handing off to the next administration. It's especially important when the incoming administration doesn't have a lot of government experience and they want to know things like, oh, I don't know, plan for a pandemic, which they went through. But it also strikes me that this is the period, right, in which the president or his staff relay to the incoming president, here are all the covert actions that we are running that you are about to take responsibility for. Like here is all the stuff that we are doing or may know that you need to know right now in the way that, you know, famously Trump says, and there's reporting to back this up, Obama told him, be prepared. North Korea is going to be your number one problem. If we don't have that handoff, it's not to say that the Biden team can't come quickly up to speed, but it seems to me that there's a you know a credible claim you could make of negligence against the current president if he doesn't tell his replacement oh by the way you know here are all of the hot spots around the world and all of the things that we are trying to do right now to protect the country right so i i actually think you know when people talk about shenanigans between the election and the, the inauguration they're often blending together actual election challenges and anxieties about, you know, sort of Bart Gelman-like scenarios with presidential exercises of powers in a malicious or spiteful fashion, for example, pardons and the like, with just really botched transition exercised badly, either for malicious reasons or incompetence reasons. And I think the latter is a under-discussed element of this. You know, George W. Bush uh, insisted on a pitch-perfect transition to the Obama administration, and Obama was very deeply moved by it and has talked about it publicly, that this was a great gift that Bush gave him. I think it changed his view of Bush in certain ways. And when he was leaving office, he made a point of saying to his cabinet, this was a great gift that George W. Bush gave it to, gave to me, and I want to give the same to my successor. And he uh, ordered them all to show every courtesy and prepare very detailed briefing materials for the incoming Trump administration, which, of course, did not read them. That's the subject of Michael Lewis's very great book, The Fifth Risk. And there is no chance that Donald Trump next week is going to say, I want a pitch perfect transition to my successor. You know, I order you, Mike Pompeo, to extend every courtesy to incoming secretary Susan Wrights and make sure that her people are given perfect briefing books on every issue. Nor will he, if you imagine him sitting down with Joe Biden to talk about the transition, he's going to give him the same parade of grievances that he 
gives every reporter or every foreign dignitary who walks into the room. He's not going to give him an organized presentation of what he needs to know. And I do think the biggest risk here is not the flagrant exercise, you know, the misconduct in the exercise of power, but just that you're going to have a new administration coming in blinder than it should. And I don't think there's very much you can do about that. They'll they'll have to reach out to a bunch of career folks. They'll have to back channel some stuff, but it's going to be ugly and it's going to be a, I, I do think it's a dangerous thing that gives uh, foreign adversaries in particular opportunities to, to do all sorts of mischief. All right. Now let's take a very wide lens and a very long view, keeping with our theme here of what the future holds, regardless in this case too, of who the next president is. We're going to go kind of do a quick round robin here. We have each decided to talk about one big thing, an overarching big national security concern or dilemma for the next four years that is going to require the president's attention, the government's attention, society's attention, uh, again, regardless of whether we've got a President Trump or President Biden. So, uh, Susan, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, so it's hard to pick just one. Um, I I think one of the biggest uh, sort of themes that's going to emerge in the next four years, uh, if there is a Biden uh, administration, is going to be sort of the question of what do U.S. foreign relationships look like? Um, How do we go about restoring relationships with our allies? And how do we go about resetting relationships with our adversaries? And and, uh, while, of course, the Trump administration and sort of Trump era has um, acutely stressed and exacerbated some underlying tensions. Um, you know, there are issues here that that you know existed well before Donald Trump, including sort of the question of how much credible foreign policy and credible national security policy that includes foreign partners can really be accomplished through executive order as opposed to in sort of the the treaty format um, and, and ratified by Congress. And is this a moment in which, for a long time, we have relied on you know? sort of the agility and flexibility and dispatch of uh, the tools available to the executive and not sort of run them through the far more cumbersome sort of process of legislative ratification. Um, And our allies have been able to sort of rely on them because the U.S. generally keeps its word, generally wants to sort of preserve its standing. Now we've sort of seen what happens um, whenever you have a U.S. president who's not so interested in preserving those relationships. How do our allies um, understand uh, sort of the value of our commitments? Are they going to say, yeah, yeah, um, this is all well and good for the next four years, but what happens when the next Trump comes along? Um, You know, this isn't really worth the paper that it's printed on. You know, also to what extent are, um, you know, not just U.S. Uh, sort of treaty allies, but, but um, you know, the sort of the, the foreign partners that fall into uh, sort of a, a nebulous uh, sort of area between partner and competitor or, or, or partner and adversary, um, you know, to what extent are they going to be able to capitalize on this moment to seek their own advantage? And, and how much is a President Biden going to be willing to do the sort of I'm sorry tour? Um, you know, we saw uh, the political 
political price that uh, that Barack Obama paid when Republicans were able to sort of paint him as leaning too far into um, uh, sort of making amends uh, with foreign, uh, you know, on the world stage uh, following the Bush era. Um, and of course, the, the really difficult question of how do we push back against Putin? How do we push back against Duterte and Erdogan? Um, how do we make credible threats and follow through with them um, in a way that imposes a real cost for malfeasance, but also doesn't um, drag U.S. foreign policy down into um, sort of a, an unproductive cycle of retribution um, uh, and actually does uh, allow for the opportunity to capitalize on some of the norms that Trump has demolished to chart a better path forward. Um, this is a really, really difficult challenge um, uh, that the Biden team, the hypothetical Biden team would be facing, um, you know, not just one that involves, um, you know, tremendous global complexity, but also a lot of domestic complexity. Um, you know, we're going to see sort of the, the fight of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party um, versus sort of the the moderate Republicans um, who might claim to have delivered Biden a, a victory, um, or both sides will have claimed to deliver Biden a victory and, and will be coming to collect on that. And so I, I really think that's something that um, certainly for the first kind of 18 months, two years of the administration, but I, I think whenever we look back, you know, that'll be kind of one of the, the really big important things that stands out over the next four years. All right, Tammy, why don't you go next? Okay, so the 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 issue I'm going to raise is one that I don't usually talk about, and it's one that I think often gets short shrift in our foreign policy conversation, but I think is going to be a running theme for the next administration, which is weapons proliferation. And when I say that, I don't only mean nuclear proliferation, although Trump's inept ham-handed and capricious engagements with North Korea and Iran have allowed both of those countries to proceed with their nuclear programs without much deterrence from the United States. North Korea just showed off a brand new missile the other day, and the Iranians, uh, we learned this morning, um, there's evidence that they are proceeding with uh, underground building, and we know that they've already rebuilt their stockpile of fissile material outside the bounds of the JCPOA agreement, uh, which Trump walked away from. So there's nuclear proliferation, which is a problem. There's the fact that Trump, despite his deep desire to, to have great relations with Russia, managed to completely screw up the possibility of a new START treaty or even keeping the one that we have going for a little while. And then, you know, there's conventional weapons proliferation. And that, I think, is more, you know, this is just a long-term trend. There are weapons systems and weapons capabilities that the United States developed that a decade ago, we were the only ones that had, you know, sophisticated drones that you could use to conduct standoff strikes. The F-35, which is, you know, a, an attack aircraft that makes full use of battle space intelligence. It's like a super high tech kind of attack aircraft. And now lots of countries have attack drones and they are being used in places like Libya. So they're not even, you know, being reserved by big powers for big wars. And, you know, the United States is selling F-35s to its treaty allies and it's selling F-35s to the Israelis. Well, Trump has now decided that he, you know, for the sake of 
some good money and uh, making the UAE happy, we'll give F-35s to the UAE. Lo and behold, the Qataris want F-35s. And if the Qataris get F-35s, the Saudis are going to want F-35s. And if we don't sell them F-35s, then they will buy whatever the latest generation is from China and or Russia. And so I feel like the conventional weapons proliferation is going to be as much of a problem. The other reason why I think that this is going to be a dominant trend briefly is that we are now in an era of renewed geopolitical competition. And whenever you have great powers and regional powers feeling more concerned about their need to compete with one another. They are going to compete in the areas of weapons, not only developing their own, but sharing with their friends. And that leads to proliferation cycles and potential unintended escalations of conflict. So that's my worry. All right, Ben, what's freaking you out, man? I'm thinking about politicization. And I think we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about the politicization of national security bureaucracies, whether Trump is reelected, in which case we will uh, worry about its happening, uh, or whether Joe Biden is elected, in which case he will have a very complicated task of trying to undo politicization of these agencies And all the while, as he's doing that, he will be being accused the entire time of politicizing them because we don't have a stable notion of truth in this country anymore. And so I was recently thinking about uh, this problem in reference to the Justice Department, who would be a credible person to lead the Justice Department who would be kind of universally understood to be above politics in somewhat the way that, for example, Edward Levy was after Watergate. And with the exception of like persuading Merrick Garland to come off the bench, I actually really couldn't think of a lot of people who would not be responded to politically. Many of them are people that I think would be great attorneys general. And yet I'm trying to imagine the Senate politics of confirming them, uh, and relatively few of them would be embraced as, you know, non-political figures. And I think that's going to be true of a lot of the intelligence community, that people who we think of as politicizing, for example, Bill Barr. So, you know, we have talked about at length the degree to which he is politicizing the Justice Department, and that seems obvious to a lot of people in our world. Yet if you listen to Republican members of the House or Senate, Bill Barr, it's like going through the looking glass. Bill Barr is uh, trying to depoliticize the Justice Department from its rank politicization during Obamagate. And, you know, under those circumstances, a next attorney general who comes in and tries to actually undo some of the damage that Barr has done is going to be operating the entire time being accused of politicizing the department, which is, of course, exactly the opposite of what he or she will be doing. And I think that same effect plays out to one degree or another across, uh, I, I mean, probably to some degree at CIA, where Gina Haspel, as we've talked about, has become to some degree contentious. 
uh, probably less so at NSA, where I think Paul Nakasone has done a remarkable job of, of you know, keeping the agency not in the political contentious region. But um, certainly the DNI and the NCTC are trying to undo the stuff that Ratcliffe and, and before him Grinnell have done is going to actually take some doing. And so I think whether Trump wins or loses, we are going to be dealing with the problem of politicization of these agencies in a pervasive fashion over a long period of time. All right. Well, my big picture concern for the next four years, uh, no surprise, I'm going to get a little uh, uh, introspective, I suppose. Uh, I want to talk just briefly about the press and our role. Look, I will be the first one to defend, actually, both the interest of the press and the performance of it uh, in covering the Trump administration. I, you know, that, that is not, by no means there's there a consensus on that. But I think that particularly when it comes to national security and deep investigative journalism, I think the facts speak for themselves that much of what we know about what this president has done and how he has operated has come because of deep reporting by myself and colleagues. And I'm willing to give us all a pat on the back for that. That said, Trust in our institution, uh, in our profession, is in the basement, if not lower. People both don't trust a lot of what we do and don't understand how we do what we do. And I am a big proponent of being more transparent about how we do our work and being more open about when we fail at that. But there has got to be a major investment in the next four years in teaching people I think at a much earlier age and what the role of the press is and what its limits are. I think that we have a media illiteracy problem in this country right now. And we've seen just in the past four years, the national security implications of it uh, insofar as, you know, people, you know, their misunderstanding, not just of the subjects that we cover, but the way that we actually cover them. So, I'm hoping for, you know, us to improve where we can as an institution. We have a lot of, you know, as as the press and we have a lot of room to grow and a lot of deficiencies to make up for. But I would hope that the next administration, whichever one it is, and sadly, I don't think it would be the Trump administration that would do this, would try to reinstill in people a sense that, you know, among our civic virtues is an understanding of a free press and its role and role as a guide for understanding what the government does and holding it accountable. I'm willing to do my part in that. And I would welcome readers to in good faith and listeners to tell me how you think I can do a better job of that. But this is also an enterprise that our leaders are going to have to embark on, I think, as an urgent security priority, because this country is tearing itself apart. And a big reason for that is our fundamental misunderstanding of each other, but also of government and how it works and how the press works as a fourth estate. So I have really big concerns about that. And uh, I'm committed to doing what I can to try and make it better. And I hope others will join me in that. So let's move on to object lessons. I will go first because we have some breaking news. Anonymous. Anonymous. It's nice when the news breaks before we finish taping. (laughs) Isn't that nice? Usually shit breaks like, no no joke, 30 minutes. Like like 4.15 on a Wednesday is when news breaks. Uh, That's a good time to Anonymous, he of the capital A variety, is anonymous no more. We have talked about the much speculated identity of the author of a, was it 2018? I can't remember now. 
of New York Times op-ed by someone saying he was a member of the Trump administration and I'm here to hold the line and I can tell you what's going on behind the scenes. It's worse than you think, but don't worry. There are patriots like me manning the barricades is Miles Taylor, which you may be thinking, who? (laughs) I just want to say Miles Taylor, chief of staff, DHS, not a senior administration official, New York Times. Yeah. So, my, yeah, this is, uh, I, I was a, a big, first off, yawn uh, to the revelation that it is Miles Taylor, who, by the way, has already come out as a former Trump administration official attacking the Trump administration and has started his own, I guess, political group, you would call it, uh, trying to remake the Republican Party, um, but who has been asked on national television before if he was anonymous and denied being anonymous. Um, To Ben's point, this was a a huge controversy within journalism circles when the New York Times granted anonymity to an op-ed writer. This is different than granting anonymity to a confidential source, but giving him a page in the New York Times to write this anonymous op-ed. And at the time we said, I think we even said on the podcast, this had better be somebody really senior and really important for us to accept granting that kind of privilege to someone to write that op-ed. I do not think Miles Taylor merited that privilege. Uh, He has already revealed himself, as I said. This is a very disappointing and underwhelming turn of events. Yeah, and actually, um, I, I think I have this right, but I actually don't even think Taylor was chief of staff when he wrote the op-ed. I think oh, he was really? just a counselor, um, you know, to, to the DHS secretary. So I, I, I agree. Like, this is a black eye for the administration or for for the New York Times, and um, you know, we can we can talk about sort of you know maybe in the future Taylor's actions and personal justifications. Um, but leaving that aside, I, this does not look good for the New York Times. And I think at the end of the day, the fact that most people walked away believing it was either a cabinet member or a very well-known individual means that the Times failed to convey enough context about this op-ed and and used the grant of anonymity to create a a real misperception about uh, the meaning of of what this person was saying and doing. So just weird all around. Um, I, I never sort of... Uh, thought that like, you know, I don't know, Mike Pompeo was going to like pull off his mask or something. But um, just what a letdown. Yeah, but you you got to also think about the fact that the New York Times labeled this a senior official means that all these other cabinet members have been either wishing that they'd had the balls to do it themselves or wondering which of their colleagues was the one who stabbed them all in the back. And now they realize it was none of them. Just some (laughs) staffer. Just some staffer. Uh, Ben, would you like to go next in your object? Yeah, my object lesson is a little bit grouchy today. So I, uh, the other day, for the first time in a very long time, in celebration of you know, what I hope is the near end of the Trump administration. I made myself a Moscow mule for in lieu of fun. And it sucked. (laughs) And I have to say, I don't like Moscow mules. And I, I, even in my newfound fondness for making cocktails, I uh, find it more 
irritating and less pleasurable than it should be because I um I feel like as somebody who has edited Lawfare over the last 4 years there should be a drink that represents you know the whole Russia side of this and it should be the Moscow mule and yet I don't want to drink Moscow mules so I am putting out a call to rational security listeners to propose the actual perfect cocktail for the last four years. I want serious recommendations. What would you call it to really capture the essence of the last four years? And what would it consist of? And I want it to be something that I would actually want to drink. So, you know, no like shit sandwich, you know, take you know, two piles of shit. I was going to suggest rubbing alcohol. Right, like none of that. I want it to be funny, capture the essence of the last few years, and something that I can make for people on election night. So that is that is your challenge. That is, what is the post-Moscow mule era going to be like for cocktails? I think we did this once before where we invited people to come up with a cocktail recipe for something Trumpian. And and this this feels like the perfect bookend to that potentially. Indeed. Indeed. Okay. All right, Susan. Um so my object lesson is um that I went to go vote yesterday. It was um among the more satisfying ballots I have ever been able to cast in Did my you vote Trump, Susan? I, I I can neither, uh, you know, confirm nor deny, obviously, ballot secrecy being of utmost importance. And I took my six-year-old because I just wanted him to see what voting was like and um, introduce him a little bit to the democratic process generally. Um, and we walk out, he has sort of big eyes and he's watching and um, the poll worker like very sweetly sort of gave him a little, you know, kind of fist bump and said like, thanks for coming out. And he got a, his own I voted sticker. And then afterwards, he looks at me and he sort of of thoughtfully kind of I said you know what do you what do you think of what did you think about voting and he said well I thought voting was when everybody went to the capitol to yell but actually you just get a sticker <laughs> I love it that is an answer only a DC city kid <laughs> give that voting you cast your vote by going and screaming at the capitol so there you go Susan learned the true meaning of voting. <laughs> you can vote and go yell at the Capitol. They're I not mutually it. exclusive. Well, you should all go vote too. And you can do that now because we're at the end of the podcast. Or you could listen to the podcast while you're standing in line to vote. If that is your thing, that would be great also. But in any event, Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at Lawfare blog. Is it Lawfare blog? I can't even remember anymore. It is Lawfare blog. Where do we, don't we have, where's your Moscow mule store? Mule store dot lawfare dot. We are, we, you can buy, you can buy rational security, Moscow engraved Moscow mule, copper, whatever the tankards or whatever they're called 
at thelawfarestore.com. Outstanding. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us as well on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. We love to read, read those reviews and helps others find the show and share the podcast uh, with a friend while you're at it. Maybe somebody you're standing next to in line while voting. What a great way to learn your, to meet your neighbors and foster civic communication. Just make sure you think they might like the podcast first. Our audio engineer this week is Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Miles Taylor. And you know what, Miles, you don't even get a band. We're going to get a Ouija board. We're going to summon the ghost of Peggy Lee. And she's going to ask, is that all there is? Whoa, but doesn't he get Miles Taylor and the real senior administration officials? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> like the backup band of Mike Pompeo. Like a cover band, a touring Mike Pompeo cover band that plays like at fairs. Is that all there is? Sophia Yan has other obligations. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamar Kaufman-Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, we will see you on the other side. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.